2 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Scott. You memorized that, didn't you? Ah. When I sent out what the reading was for this week, both Ashley and Scott said, is that it? And so Scott took that to heart and memorized it. That's great. Thank you, Scott. Any last words? Any last words? You know, we have given opportunity for condemned prisoners to give some last words before the execution. You know, last words have been a part of an execution process all the way back to England as early as 1388. The practice was brought to the Americas by the Puritans in the 17th century. And to this day, those criminals that are about to be executed are given the opportunity to speak last words. The condemned is always asked, do you have any last words? And what we're about to study today is Paul's answer to that question. The letters of 2 Timothy are Paul's last words. He he wrote this letter, as we're going to find, from a Roman prison. And he was awaiting death. Now, the book of Acts closes on Paul's life in chapter 28 with Paul in prison. But history tells us he was released from that imprisonment, had a season of more fruitful ministry, and then landed himself in jail again. And it's from this second imprisonment they would eventually end with this execution under Emperor Nero that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, probably around A.D. 64-65. So here's Paul sitting in a Roman cell, awaiting execution. His trial is not going well. And Paul writes last words that echo down from that cell through history to our ears today. And these are not just words that are are spoken or written into some kind of a vacuum. Paul didn't write these words to no one in particular or to just the church in general. These were words that were written specifically to a young man, a young man by the name of Timothy. And it's made clear in the opening sentences of the letter, which Scott just read for us this morning, this man, Timothy, was special to Paul. Now, the opening of this letter is formatted as was typical of Paul's other letters. Now, in our day, in our day, if you're going to write a letter, you begin with the recipient, Dear Brian Vandenbrink. And then there'd be a greeting, I hope you're doing well. There'd be the body of the letter, Your crazy socks distract me. And finally, you'd close with the sender, Sincerely, Adam. Now, I just made that all up. Any resemblance to actual persons or situations is purely coincidental. Now, you probably noticed that in the opening to the letter that Scott just read for us, it read a little bit differently because you began with the sender, then the recipient, then words of greeting before you got into the body of the letter. And so it is that 2 Timothy, uh, so that's what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul identifies himself as the sender. 
Then he identifies Timothy as the recipient. And finally, he offers a word of greeting and blessing over Timothy. Sender, recipient, and greeting. And now just to note, while Timothy is the stated recipient of this letter, Paul also meant it for the entire church in Ephesus, where Timothy was. So while this letter is intensely personal, as you're going to see, it was not private. It was personal, but it was not private. You know, sometimes in the church office, we receive a letter from one of our missionaries or one of the ministries that we support, and it starts and it says, Dear Pastor Adam, and in fact, if I know that missionary well, he or she might have actually included a personal greeting. I hope you're doing well, Adam. I hope your family's doing well. But even then, when I received that letter to Pastor Adam, even with a personal greeting, I know it's not just a letter for me. It's a letter that's meant to be shared with all of you, because while it's a letter that I mentioned in, and even to me, it's a letter for us, for the entire congregation. And that's the way this letter to Second Timothy was. Paul knew that the letter would be shared not only with Timothy, but with the entire church. And so even though it is deeply and intensely personal at times, this was meant to be read and applied by the whole church. So it's personal, but it's not private. And before we get into the actual words of the introduction, we should take a minute to remember who this young man, Timothy, was. Who was the recipient of this letter? You know, Paul first met Timothy on his first missionary journey in Acts 16. He came to Lystra. He met Timothy, who was the son of a believing Jewish woman named Eunice and an unnamed Greek father. And Timothy was spoken of well by all the Christians there. And so Paul wanted to take Timothy with him on his missionary journeys. And so he did. And thus began what would become far more than some casual working relationship. What began there was a mentorship. Timothy became to Paul not just a partner, but a protege. Timothy became to Paul not just his servant, but a son. This man, Timothy, had a special place in Paul's ministry, but more than that, in Paul's and while Paul was the primary author, we even find that six of Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon, are all written in the name of Paul and Timothy. Paul was recorded throughout the Scriptures as having dispatched Timothy to handle many a troubled situation in Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Macedonia, in Philippi, and here in the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy to Ephesus. When Paul describes Timothy in Romans chapter 16, verse 21, he calls Timothy my fellow worker. In 1st Thessalonians 3, he calls Timothy our brother and God's co-worker for the gospel of Christ. When Paul describes Timothy to the church in Philippi in Philippians 2.22, he says of Timothy, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. As a son with a father. So much so that in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul tells the church in Corinth that Timothy is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Friends, Timothy is not just a co-worker. 
Timothy is to Paul like a son. He loves Timothy as his very own, as his very own child. And that's made clear in the introduction that Scott read for us in the letter. In verse 2, it says, this is to Timothy, my beloved child. To Timothy, my beloved child. Timothy was dearly, dearly beloved by Paul. And church, we, we shouldn't take this word beloved lightly. Because this very same word, beloved, is the exact same word that Paul regularly chose to describe all who follow Christ. We find that Paul often gave the label of beloved to specific individuals who were following and serving Christ. Like Colossians 1.17, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician. 3 John 1.1, the beloved Gaius. However, beyond specific individuals, beloved, church, beloved was the name not just given as an adjective to certain people who followed Christ, but it's the adjective, it's the word used not just by Paul, but by Peter, John, James, and Jude in their letters to describe those who follow Christ. So it is Paul would write in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, to all those in Rome who are loved, who are beloved by God and called to be saints. It's the same word, beloved by God. Church, if you are called by God, if you're saved by Christ, if you're filled by the Holy Spirit, you are beloved. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. As we discussed almost exactly one month ago on Sanctity of Life Sunday, we were looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and there the Apostle Peter called the church beloved. And as we discussed then, friends, beloved reminds us of who we are in Jesus Christ. Beloved reminds us who we are in Jesus Christ so that it doesn't matter what those around you call you. It doesn't matter what the culture labels you. It doesn't matter how you're treated or mistreated. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, those who are in Christ are now beloved. You are beloved. And friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And God has brought some of you here today and logged some of you onto the live stream today just to hear that good news. That you in Christ our beloved. Jesus Christ has come so that the guilty and the shamed, the weak and the powerless, the unloved and the unlovely might become the beloved of God. And if you have come here this morning or logged into our live stream and you desire deep down to know that belovedness, the gospel is that what Christ has done through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on the third day offers us now a restored relationship with God where we can no longer be slaves to fear but become children, beloved children of God. And if you'd like to know more about that, don't wait. At the end of this service, if you're here, come talk to me. If you're watching the live stream, contact me through the church website, chestnutstreetbaptist.org contact because I would love to talk more with you that you might understand what it means to be and to become the beloved of God. And Paul says here to Timothy, 
you're a beloved son. And I want you to note something. He doesn't just say you're the beloved son of God, you're you're a beloved child of God, which Timothy is. Paul says, you're my beloved son. Paul has affection for Timothy that parallels God's affection. The love of God overflows from Paul to Timothy. And church, this, this is what relationships are supposed to be in the body of Christ. The overflow of our belovedness as we are beloved by God, that overflows from us to one another. The church is not supposed to be some loose association of individuals. This is not supposed to just be some gathering of casual acquaintances. Church, He is beloved, and she is beloved, and you are beloved. We are to approach one another as beloved. The love of Christ filling us and overflowing onto our brothers and sisters. We are to get intimate with one another, to be honest with one another, to sacrifice for one another, to forgive one another, to sacrifice to protect our unity, to wash one another's feet. Because that other person, you know, the one in the pew that bothers you, that embarrasses you, whose social media posts drive you crazy, he's beloved. She's beloved. And we are to love. For example, today is Valentine's Day. If the fact that my entire family's dressed in red didn't cue you off that something was happening. And men, if that's the first time you're hearing about this, you still have time. The day's young. But today's Valentine's Day. And we all know that on Valentine's Day, friends, that can't be the only time that you show love to your beloved. Valentine's Day can't be the only day you say to your partner, hey, I love you. Oh, yeah, it's once a year. See you again in a year. Friends, beloved... And maintaining that love, a vibrant, growing relationship, means that we commit to cultivate that relationship. We we need to pray for and look for and long for opportunities to regularly love one another as beloved. As Christ said, wash one another's feet. Because he, because she, is beloved. And friends, what will you do today? To love the church, the beloved of Christ. And Paul writes this letter, sending Timothy, who we see is his beloved son, his very last words. Again, Paul's writing from a prison cell. The trial's not going well. The executioner is standing outside his door. Death is looming large over all of it. And in this letter, we hear Paul write, and I'm paraphrasing here, Timothy, they're about to kill me for preaching the gospel. And when they do, you pick up and take over what I'm doing. And through this letter, we're going to witness Paul unflinchingly face his impending death. And I don't know about you, but I read 2 Timothy. And this is not the letter that I would have written when I was in prison. If I was Paul, I would have been writing to Timothy. I would have been like, dear Timothy, you remember when the church got together and prayed for Peter when he was in jail and God sent an angel and let Peter out? Could you gather that same group to pray for me? That's how I would have written it. Paul doesn't write that. 
Paul doesn't write that. We don't hear him whine or worry or whimper. There's no bartering or bargaining or bemoaning. Paul faces his death unflinchingly. And friends, I believe he does so for two reasons. A less important and a more important reason. The first one's important, but not as important as the second. The first reason Paul doesn't flinch as he faces death is because he knows that Timothy's watching. Remember, in this letter, Paul's saying, after I'm killed for preaching, you take up the baton and you preach. And Paul knows that if Timothy witnesses him whining and worrying and whimpering now, it's going to undermine Timothy's confidence in the future. Because church, courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. But so is cowardice. So is cowardice. And your choices and your behavior, church, affect more than yourself. Your attendance or lack thereof, your participation or lack thereof, your giving or lack thereof, your service or lack thereof, your witness or lack thereof, your boldness or lack thereof are either inspiring or undermining those around you. Church, we are setting up the next generation for either greater success or greater failure. We're either setting them up for a greater chance of imitation or a greater chance at abdication. We are giving them a greater chance for either following in courage or following in cowardice. Those around you, church, the next generation are watching you. And what are they seeing? What is your life? If your life is contagious, what is catching from your life? What will those around you in the next generation catch from you? Paul knows that Timothy's watching, so he doesn't flinch. Because he doesn't want Timothy to flinch either. I'm not going to back down in the face of death, because Timothy, I don't want you to back down in the face of death. But the second important reason why he doesn't flinch is even more important and even more poignant. He doesn't flinch in the face of, face of death, friends, because he knows the God of life. Paul does not flinch in the face of death because he knows the God of life. Did you notice how he introduced himself in verse 1? Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul can face death because of the gospel. Paul can face death boldly and unflinchingly because he knows the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. And church, this is our confidence and hope today. You know, Paul says, listen, you can take my freedom because I'm in Christ and I'm truly free. You can take all my possessions because Christ is my treasure. You can take my reputation because Jesus is my reward. You can take my comfort and my happiness because Jesus is my joy. You can take everything, even my life, because you know what? Jesus is my life. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Church, following Jesus Christ might cost you everything. It cost Paul everything. But Paul says, it cost me everything, but that was really nothing. 
Because in Christ I found everything and more. Jesus is my life. Friends, this is the gospel. Only in Jesus Christ is there true light. And friends, this is the message that this world so desperately needs to hear. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to see people lied to and blinded by this culture, duped by the deities of this world into thinking that there are other things that can offer them life. We witness every day people destroying themselves and their relationships and their families in pursuit of this job or this title or this thing. Things that the world has convinced them, well, these things, that's really life. Persons are wasting their precious lives to become successful at things that ultimately don't even matter. Into believing that this achievement or that accomplishment is finally going to give them life and peace. Persons lied to by this culture that life and peace can be found in defacing the beauty of their God-given identity and replacing it with a new gender identity or sexual identity. A population duped into believing that once you've thrown off old-fashioned morality and outdated ideas about God, then you'll find life and peace. And the Bible says, no, no, that's all a lie. You're never going to find peace and life in those things. Because life only comes from one place. And that's Jesus Christ. There's only one place. And that's Jesus. Everything else is a sham. It's a lie. It's a false hope. These things cannot give you life. They only lead to death. I once was lost in darkest night. I thought I knew the way. The sin that had promised me joy and life, it led me to the grave. Friends, our world has been lied to. The people are being lied to. The media is lying. The culture is lying. We're being lied to. We're being told this is where life is. This is where peace is. This is where hope is. Friends, the only hope is in Jesus Christ. The only life is in Him. All of those other things, they only lead to death. Paul can face his death, his physical death, because he says, I know where life is and I have it. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And hallelujah. Jesus is my life. So Paul can face all things, even death itself. Because he knows where life is. True life, eternal life, the way, the truth, and the life. So friends who are here, who are on the live stream, do you have life today? Or are you still looking for love, looking for life in all the wrong places? Because life can only be found in Jesus Christ. All I have is Christ and He's all I need. For Jesus is my life, as we sang this morning. But friends, do you believe it? And Paul closes this greeting to Timothy by offering a blessing in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Three words. Three words. Grace, mercy, and peace. In the Greek, the first is the word charis, meaning grace, which is a traditional Greek, Greek greeting. Then erene, which translates the Hebrew word shalom, which was a traditional Jewish greeting. And sandwiched in the middle is elios, mercy, a Christian greeting. And Paul confirms that all of these things, grace, mercy, and peace, flow from one place and one place alone. 
God the Father through Jesus Christ. Grace, the gift of life, that which we do not deserve. Mercy, not getting the punishment that we deserve for the wrongs we've done and the good things we've left undone. And peace, shalom, a restored relationship and reconciliation with God the Father. These things come from God through the death, resurrection, and life of Jesus Christ. And friends, as you can see, as you can see, these are three words that we all need. Grace. Mercy and peace. This is what we're seeking. This is what the world is seeking. And Paul confirms they're found in one place. And that's in Jesus. So friends, ultimately, these are Paul's last words. And what's Paul's last word? Even from this brief summary. Paul says to Timothy, he says, hey, listen, if I have any last word for you, as I'm going to my death, my last word is Jesus. My last word is Jesus. Because in Jesus' life, in Jesus' grace, in Jesus' mercy, in Jesus' peace, and what Paul wants for Timothy and for the church who reads this letter to know is that he and they need to know more deeply and intimately and transformatively Jesus Christ. Because He is life. And church, that's my prayer. My prayer as we study this book together is that you and I will walk away knowing Jesus more deeply, more intimately, more transformatively. That we will grow ever more into our identity as beloved children of God. That Jesus Christ will become ever more our life. That those around us will see Jesus in and through our lives. That our courage will become contagious so that the next generation that follows us will take up and sing the hymn of the ages, the hope of all the world. And that they will sing even once we are gone. So church, as Paul will encourage Timothy to do later in this letter, let's together take up the Word of God. Reading, studying, discussing, memorizing, meditating. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but regularly. Gathering together, like the men's Bible say that's about to start, to study the Word of God. So that in and through God's word, we might meet and be grown into the image of Jesus Christ in whom is life. That through God's word, we come to know ourselves and see ourselves through Jesus as beloved children of God. Friends, let's study corporately through 2 Timothy, but also take up God's word individually and regularly. So that eventually, so that eventually, friends, it might be for us as it was for Paul. May it eventually be for us, as it was for Paul, that when it comes down to our end, that our last and final word, like Paul, is Jesus. He is my life. Let's pray. Father, may Jesus Christ be glorified in us. May he be our life, and may the world see, may the world hear, may the world know. Father, remind us who we are as your beloved children. Bring us closer to you. Shine more brightly in and through your people. And may your life be manifest for all to see, all to hear, and all to know. That the next generation 
might sing with us and sing boldly and courageously. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And hallelujah, Jesus is my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In closing, let's stand and sing together a powerful, powerful hymn. And can it be...